And we are live with our 147th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We are really excited today to have James Kettle on with us to discuss Portswigger and Burp Suite and request smuggling and all the things that he's been doing recently. Uh, just before we dive into it and do a quick introduction, um, we've, we don't have really a lot that's going on. Please jump into the Slack channel if you have questions or post them to the YouTube page as we're going on today. Um, but the Slack invite is available at absoluteappsec.com if you want to join the conversation. Um, outside of that, uh, Ken, I don't think I've got a lot of other announcements right now. There's not many people traveling or there's not a lot of in-person conferences. I think we all know that. Um, so I, I, I think we can just dive right into it unless there's something else, Ken. No, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think there's anything else to, uh, to sort of cover. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think James needs much of an introduction. If you're <laughs> doing web security, you've undoubtedly come across, and we've talked about your research a ton on this show, James. I mean, they're, they're, there's probably at least like 20% of our episodes that, uh, you know, cover something that you and your uh, team have discovered. So, um, yeah, everybody's very likely very familiar with James's work. Um, some of the, the latest stuff has been really cool around request smuggling. Um, and so, yeah, I think today we just kind of wanted to like, you know, like we normally do, get to know you, um, find out a little bit about your background uh, mainly, uh, also I, I, to start with sort of your origin story, like it's, it's always interesting to find out how people get into the role, but especially that, that they're in, but especially when it's a security researcher role. Um, so yeah, if we could, we could, if we could start off, like, how did you get interested in what you do? Um, and how, how you ended up, you know, throughout the years getting to the point where you're at now. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I got into security, uh, relatively late in the game uh, age-wise when I was at, uh, at university. And uh, the actual thing that drove me to try and learn these skills was I used to play this online computer game quite a lot called uh, Soldat. It's this Polish uh, side-scrolling shooter. And uh, I was reasonably good at it, right? But there was this guy that sold cheats for this game. So there were loads of hackers in this game and they were ruining it for the people that weren't cheating. Uh, and he was selling his cheats via this website. And I was like, I wonder if I knew how to hack, I could just take control over this website and like replace the cheat with a virus, just <laughs> deletes the computer and, you know, it, it will serve these cheaters right. Uh, so I spent a bunch of time learning about cross-site scripting, but cross-site scripting wasn't going to work on that site. And then I learned cross-site request forgery. And this was back in 2008. And then cross-site request forgery worked on everything. Yeah. Uh, and I established that I could compromise with the, website, the website with this. And then I started to think through the other aspects of this plan and decided uh, maybe it wasn't the best idea <laughs> after all. Uh, and I'd probably get caught and the obsec was terrible and so on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. That, 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 that's interesting. So late in the game, so you're, uh, you're at the university. What were you studying at that time? Uh, that was computer science. Oh, you were doing computer science. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, there's a lot of us that have that background, right? Um, so, uh, so you started like looking at the website 
I mean, was that that was your first introduction into security? From there, did you? Yeah, the, you know, go that was all it. In, or I just googled stuff, uh, uh-huh. and after finding that, uh, I saw some like newspaper article about how it was like Google or eBay or someone had paid someone for a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So then I got into bug bounty hunting. Uh, I hunted on Google for a couple of, for a, a couple of years. Uh, and it ended up in their top 10, like way, way back then. Uh, and then I worked as a pen tester for a couple of years after university. And I just never found, it's like once I understand an issue, I find it boring. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be finding the same issue day in, day out. Uh, yeah. So that's what drove me to go for the research role uh, at Portswigger when I saw it advertised because it was like, well, here, you're not finding the same issue. You're just trying to find something new all the time, which keeps it interesting. That's a, I, I mean, and that's a really good point, right? Like, uh, Ken, I know you and I have discussed this, right? Having done security and been pen tester since like, you know, about the same time as you, James, like, you know, mid to late 2000, I don't know how to call the aughts, whatever. Um, that, XSS just doesn't have the same effect on us that it did back then, right? Like, you know, it's great that you can find another bypass and maybe get around, you know, some filter, but it just doesn't hit quite the same as it did that first time that you find something. And so it's really hard to get get super excited about it. Yeah, that's Uh, it. It's one of those things like it's useful. It gets the job done. Yeah. When I do a pen test, I'm trying to, uh, I did one like for just for like a, for a, cha- a charitable thing recently and i was trying all these really advanced techniques and none of them worked and then they had stored xss and it was so disappointing <laughs> yeah, so disappointing. I, I don't want to be hacking things using <laughs> techniques that are that well understood it's just boring <laughs> yeah yeah well it That's... sounds like you're in a in a great role then <laughs> you know where you're currently at and i i actually i i love this like uh this path that you've got that you've gone through the bug bounty, the bug bounty world. Cause I, when we came up, I, that did not exist, right? Like there was this idea of, um, you know, responsible disclosure if you found something on a company's website, but there was no real pathway there to actually get paid. It just shows how much the industry has kind of grown over the years. And I know you're still pretty actively involved. I mean, you still do bug bounties, correct? Yeah, that's right. I, 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 I basically use them as a tool to prove that my research really works because you can present the most amazing sounding thing, but if you didn't actually exploit a real target with it, people will just diss it yeah. regardless of whether it like, it might be good. It might not be good, but you have to prove it's good by hitting yeah. a real target yeah. and bug bounties. Let me do that legally, yeah, which a, is good. Yeah. Which is <laughs> good. I, I, Ken's got yes. a story about you know I don't remember like the Pentagon or something like that. Oh People yeah, Pentagon, up. FBI or NCIS, yeah, super fun stuff. So uh, yeah, yeah. So the way you're doing it is much better. <laughs> <laughs> so some of us were, were a bit dumber about the way we went about it uh, earlier on. But uh, did you have? I mean, when you were a child, like, did you have any like? what kind of got you into the computer science path to begin with? Did you have any inclinations as a kid that you would like? want to do that as a future career or was it something it was just sort of like a practical choice or yeah how did that all sort of come about for you uh i've never really thought about that uh i started coding a bit uh when i was 14 i think 
I, I always liked playing games. I coded my own text adventure in QBasic and it was 10,000 lines and I didn't know how to make functions. I, I literally read, I had this massive book on QBasic and I read like the first chapter. So I had if and I had go to and I didn't have any functions. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> that's amazing uh, i i feel like you should post that up on your site there, i, I don't yeah. think i don't think i've got the code anymore unfortunately <laughs> it's, it's in an attic somewhere <laughs> yeah well if anyone can find james's code like we'll send you a t-shirt or something right yeah that'd be awesome <laughs> yeah well that I, I mean yeah cool ken did you have another question sorry I yeah i was gonna kind of just you know ask like <clears throat> with with research you know one of the, one of the questions i have is like how, how is your, I don't know how to ask this, but like, how is your day structure? How do you choose what, what things you're going to research? Like, you know, is this something where you're more working backwards from here's some targets I'd like to try and find weaknesses on. And then you sort of go from there, or is it the reverse of that where you think you've sort of researched a vulnerability and then you use, it sounded like it was that, like where you find, you find something you're interested in, you dig in deep and then trying to try to apply it against bug bounties um i i just yeah i'm more curious how our researchers sort of like structure you know what does that look yeah. like for you there, so th there's different ways of doing it uh the way that i do it is i basically have a list of ideas for maybe i can hack things by doing xyz uh and the list you know it, it grows over time and part of it's based on i'll read someone else's research and i and I'll be like, I wonder if they tried this thing because they didn't say if they tried it or, or not uh, and such like, or maybe they'll just be ideas based, you know, like, so f from, from loads of different sources, I have this massive pool of things that might work. And then what I try and do is I, I pick things out from there and I try and establish how I can basically test this idea and see whether it really works on any real sites as quickly as possible uh, because some things will, it will take you week. You will have to invest weeks of time just to test the hypothesis. Does this concept work? And then you'll try it and it, and it won't work and you've just mm -hmm. wasted weeks. And it's, it's inevitable that that, 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 that will, that that will happen with research. You're always going to have loads of bad ideas. And for me, the, the key thing is uh, I've got this burp project file that, has every bug bounty website loaded into it already. Uh, and m my extensions work at that scale. So I just control A, select 300,000 requests and say, run my scan on this. And I use a little framework that I wrote that basically lets me write a basic scan check that tests an idea. And it takes like 15 minutes to code it up and maybe two hours to run it on the, on the, on the project file. And then so that way I can just very quickly test, does this idea work? Is it worth pursuing or okay. is it just a waste of time? So, and that, I mean, I think that's important to, to note, right? Especially for on both sides of the researcher crowd and on like the pen tester crowd is how many of the ideas just don't go anywhere. Cause I know I've spent, you know, you know, at this point in my career, hundreds, if not thousands of hours, trying to track down vulnerabilities that just don't exist, right? That's, that, that's the nature of the game. So in your experience, how often like of like all this research that you and port, the Port Swigger team puts out, like how, 
how many of the ideas that you trace down actually result in, uh, you know, verifiable research? What would you say a percentage? Just ballpark. I, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to put an accurate number on it, and it depends where you draw the line and so on. But maybe I would say maybe seventy percent are just junk. Okay. Uh, there's some stuff. There's some reoccurring. You know, often when I publish publish some research, people say, "Did you try X Y Z?" Uh-huh. Uh, and some of those are just massive time sinks and don't go anywhere. Like everyone says, have you tried using trailing HTTP one headers? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, actually I have. And it was <laughs> the biggest waste of time. I'm not saying you shouldn't yeah. try that yeah. for sure. But when I tried it, <laughs> it, it did not yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that that's the name of the game, right, is, is figuring out what's actually doable. I, it's interesting that you've got that uh, that process down as far as this huge list of, yeah, I mean, this huge, huge state file or this huge project file with all these endpoints, and they're able to actually quickly analyze that. And I, I don't think on our side there's enough attention paid to the setup that it takes to actually do some of this, right? getting your burp state or your burp uh, project configured properly in order to run is, I, I mean, it's crucial to actually finding vulnerabilities and finding research, right? Yeah. I mean, you, that's how my oh. research works. Sorry. Like it's, it's essential that you can test things fast because it's worth trying really stupid ideas mm-hmm. if you can test them fast. And some really stupid ideas have amazing results. So you want yeah. to be trying them. Sorry. Do you, it sounds like you, uh, you know, I interrupted. I, I just I thought I had, I mean, it sounds like, are you using a pretty like burp, burp extender pretty uh, seriously to, to, I know you said you have your own custom framework. I'm wondering if that's something that you just use, like it's plugged in via some sort of extension into burp or if it's outside of that completely. Uh, no. Yes. So uh, the burp extensions that I release are, are all the extensions that I used for my research uh very cool that's why uh they have certain quirks like you might notice they've got an insane number of settings some of them uh and it it, and it or they just have basically all the decisions made in the design of those weren't made for you they were made for me to do the research with uh so that yeah that's why they let you like like they're extremely powerful but they also have massive foot guns it's like if you check the wrong box then you'll just completely break burp uh, and there's no documentation and so on, but it's, but it's, it's useful. You know, it's, it's still useful yes. to people. Right. For sure. One of the things that we, when we, we do, uh, so we give Seth and I this secure code training course, but we, when, what we talk about is like what it's like to actually sit down and do this. And some of the tips we give people are, um, you know, try to like in terms of your workflow, like, try to cut out the noise for two hours or whatever your limit for your attention span is. Um, Try not to make it too personal, you know, don't get too emotionally invested in the outcome. Just stay a little bit more, you know, around the process. And I'm just curious if you have some tips for budding researchers along the same lines of like, you know, what are common frustrations that you come across? You know, how do you, how do you kind of structure your, um, your approach, like, are there any little sort of tips, uh, you know, like zone in, like with noise canceling headphones, I know, and I noticed you got the headphones on, uh, you know, like, are there any things, you, anything like that, that you can provide, you know, research, 
want, uh, upcoming researchers out there? Uh, off the top of my head, no, nothing quite that broad. Uh, I would say there's some there's some mistakes that that are quite easy to make, but but they're less about the, the environment you do the research in and more about like about what your goals are and that kind of thing. Uh, like you might do some research that's that's really that's really technically amazing, but it only works on one website or the whole internet. And I think that's still an awesome research. I I would still really value that. Uh, or people will do extremely good research, but they just won't quite sell it, right? Like they'll give the they'll put they'll just put it in a write-up with a title that doesn't get people to click it or provide any context and fill it with memes and write it in broken English. I mean, you know, obviously that's not their choice. Uh, yes. Uh, but it's like, as hackers, we value the technical side more than everything else, you know, and right. that's great. Uh, but if you want, if you, if, if you want other people to be building it on your research, they need to read it. And so it's, it's worth putting a lot. If once you've got something good, it's really Im, Im, important to put quite a lot of thought into how you communicate it. That, so there's a marketing <laughs> component to, to all of this that you can't sort of, uh, you shouldn't ignore. Um, yeah. Kind of, but I wouldn't dis exactly diss it by calling it a marketing component. Yeah. Like people will publish an amazing theoretical technique and they won't apply it to a single site uh, or yeah, or barely. And so actually it would work on loads of sites, but they just didn't, didn't bother doing that. Uh, uh, like when I did my cause misconfigure, uh, exploiting cause misconfigurations for Bitcoins and bounties, I read someone else's post and they described the exact technique that I used. And I just put it in my pipeline and got a load of case studies and put it in burp scanner. So burp flags it. And that was one of my most popular pieces of research. Obviously I cited them at the top of the work, you know, uh, sure. and it was hardly any work on my behalf because they did all the research. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd almost say it's, it's a lot of kind of the soft skills, not necessarily marketing, but just, you know, just framing the the research and framing it like getting feedback from people you trust to be able to push that out i mean is that is that something that you do do you have a team that reviews your research or reviews your output uh before it goes live i mean i know you've got like the port swigger team is that is that how you guys function uh it does get internally reviewed okay yeah yeah and yeah that definitely helps uh yeah. but i think the main thing is I think everyone knows how to make how to make stuff better. It's just about putting the time in. It's just how how much do you value helping people understand what you've done, uh -huh. or how much do you have this view that oh, if they don't understand it, they aren't worthy. I'm sure I I'm sure there's a bit of that behind a lot of poorly explained research. Is they're just like well, either you understand it or you don't. Yeah, but to have some some mass adoption or to make it easier to to have folks uh, built, like you said, build upon your research, having it well written, seems like there's a lot of value in that, obviously. 
and uh, explaining well. And one of the things I like about your post too, uh, uh, your whenever you release your research is the um, ability to sort of with with graph like literally like this is gonna make me sound stupid, but the the uh, imagery and and the um, the visual representations you provide. Uh, I will say that you know to your point, it's very easy to understand. I think uh, very easy to consume. Um, yeah. Uh, just it's well done and uh, definitely reduces friction to building upon that research. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's just the time that you put it, that you put in on it. And uh, I, I am privileged working as a full-time researcher. I have, I'm allowed to spend like six weeks working on a presentation, basically full-time uh, when, if, you know, if you're just doing it in your evenings, you probably don't, you, you, you're, you're, you're just going to be focusing on what you enjoy, you know, and that's fine. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. I've just shared a link, uh, which is so I've got a write up explaining all the advice that I have on how to do security research. Well, uh, so hopefully there's yeah. some useful tips in, in there. Yeah. And I, I, I have posted it up too, right? Because it is a, I mean, it, it is relevant, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I we, Ken and I have talked about this quite a few times, right? Like, cause we've both been involved on the company side of the bug bounty programs. Right. And the, the amount of times that I get, uh, you know, a, a report that comes in, that's just like, Hey, I was able to do this without any sort of like impact statement, or they didn't actually run it through all the way to exploit it completely. Or, you know, they, they just didn't take the time to write it up. Um, which means it takes me more time to actually analyze the impact and give a payout, but it also impacts like future interactions that we have um, that I like, I would recommend that people actually go and look at something like that. Right. As far as how do you document and how do you write, how do you represent yourself when you're providing results, whether that's in a report as a pen tester or in a research report as a bug bounty researcher, like that, it that will direct materially affect how much you actually make, right? Like I, I, and I, I think we discount that quite a bit because we are so technical, right? Yeah, that's it. There's just this tendency to only value the technical side. Yeah, which yep. can undersell it. Yeah. In, in effect. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. It's easy for me, you know, looking at it from a company's perspective, where they're like oh, well, if the risk is only X because you were only able to get one record, I'm only going to pay you for getting one record, right? <clears throat> Even though it had you taken the time to actually expand that out and explain it well, that you could get a million, right? There, there's a, yeah, there's a real like impact to the company there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's always two sides to it. Sometimes you like, I found uh, my SSRF on Yahoo, uh, and then went exploring on their internal network and they were really not happy yeah. uh, with that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, uh, I didn't I even know. find anything that interesting. <laughs> well, hey, for what it's worth, GitHub, we have an SSRF target that I can, <laughs> if you'd like, we can point Yeah, can Yeah, I haven't, I haven't hacked GitHub much, have I? I should fix that. <laughs> yes. Well, if you're <laughs> there, you go, Ken. <laughs> this is my promo to yeah, hack on GitHub now. Um, I'm I am curious. Like, uh, I know this is probably a tough question, just because you know research it, it 
it's research. So some of the things you're working on, you may not even want to discuss. But I'm curious what web security trends uh, interest you, you know, as of late, or if there are any trends you're noticing on the whole that we should all maybe be paying a little bit more attention to. I know request smuggling has obviously been a big topic for uh, for for us for sure uh, lately, especially. So um, yeah, just sort of like anything that you actually can share if you can. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so people who people who follow my research c- closely can can probably guess what I'm going to be saying here. Uh, but there's but, but basically, on the one hand, systems are getting more secure in the in terms of you've got frameworks preventing a bunch of the classic bugs out of the box, making things like XSS, cross-site request forgery, SQL injection less common. Although obviously, there's still edge cases. And old sure. and old apps yeah. uh, <laughs> and bad frameworks and so on, uh, but so in things that are getting tougher on that side, uh, but on the other side, things are just getting more and more complex, and people are stitching together different architectures, and it's like it's you know a, a web application used to just be one server, right? And now you're lucky if if it's just got a front end. And maybe a few backends. Mm-hmm. There's you see ho- whole loads of sites that have like multiple layers of caching on different servers, and they're just getting rooted through these crazy chains. And it, it's it's just creating more and more problems. And the problems are um, also maybe getting harder harder to find as well. Yeah, I think we've noticed. Um, and one of the things Seth and I have talked a bit about is that. Uh, with more complex distributed environments, stuff like SSRF has not only is it been the case for me anyways, where it's been a more prevalent finding than it has ever been before, but also like the impact is usually pretty high. Um, even though there's been some efforts like the uh, Amazon's like, uh, what is it? I can't remember anymore. I am IMS or something V2 or whatever it is where it makes SSRF and grabbing metadata creds like harder. There've been some changes for sure, but like, that's one thing I would say, yeah, I, we've seen and talked a lot about the fact that these distributed systems are making things like SSRF more impactful and easy to find. It feels like, it feels like, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. They're just creating like, like, uh, I, I think the research that Orange Sci has done over the last few years is also proved great examples of just you know you have a front end and a back end and they do like path normalization slightly differently and the result is an absolute disaster uh or the or the exchange stuff uh i've only had a cursory skim on this i haven't dived into it properly but basically it's these it's these crazy complex systems creating bugs that you have to invest loads of time just to understand what's happening but then once you do the whole thing just just falls apart Super interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, and, and to that point, James, the uh, I always see these. I always see these authorization issues, especially as you start to have all the different systems that talk to, to each other. And that's, I mean, that's where the request smuggling comes into play as well. Is we're starting to trust these internal systems to talk to one another. We've got Kubernetes, like huge Kubernetes installs that you know all the microservices have to access each other, 
And the second that you start to find that those the caching or whatever else authorization just seems to fall apart, which we've still got this this uh, tight outer or this tough outer shell where we do all of our authentication authorization. But once you get into that squishy inner middle, it, it, it feels like you're right. It falls apart. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't know if that's just due to, I, I mean, I, I, if it's the complexity that we're talking about there, or it's a lack of um, developer understanding about what's going on between those different services or the amount of time that it takes to build something like that. But it is, I, I mean, it's difficult. And I, I, I know from a developer perspective, it's difficult. So I don't like, finding those issues externally as a bug bounty researcher um, or as a researcher in general feels very kind of bespoke, right? Like the application that you're looking at may not, or that technique for the one site may not apply to another one. I mean, is that what you're finding or are you still finding a lot of the, like the smuggling where it goes across the board? So I've, uh, I, I think there are loads of juicy bugs that are caused by overcomplexity that you will only find by gaining a really good understanding of one target. Mm -hmm. And if you were to tell me that I had to actually work as a bug bounty hunter and I needed that income, uh, then I would pick one target, you know, like a big target, uh, and get to understand it really well and find bugs that way. Like uh, I would attempt to do what a file descriptor did with twitter basically where i swear he gets like more like half their total payouts yeah just because he just hammers that one target and has an understanding of it that's so much better he can find the same bug as someone else but then get five times the impact because he can chain it with a, with his bag of other things that he knows about that target that no one else actually knew yeah uh, what well, and, yeah. and i think i think that's a good point to 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 push out to anyone that's listening is Yes, there is this this tendency in the bug bounty, uh, at least in the reports that I see, to go pull the latest CVE, scan a site for it, and then submit the bug. And yes, yeah, everyone's yeah. trying to get the low hanging fruit, right? Everyone yeah. wants the easy wins. They're all focused on recon, uh, yeah. just finding the really ancient subdomains and getting shells. And I mean, yeah, it work. It does. It that does work too. But it's yeah. it's it's not the only way of doing it. No, no, and. And, you know, what excite me is, excites me when I get those bug bounty reports is exactly what you're saying. When I see someone that has an understanding of the application and the company they're looking at, and then they're chaining together, oh, here's an information disclosure along with an insecure direct object reference, along with, you know, maybe an SSRF, and all of a sudden they have all this customer data. Guess what? We're going to pay that out, right? Because you've actually understood the architecture you've understood the controls that this company has in place and you can make quite a bit, probably more money doing it that way than you could just sending your one scanner at, you know, a hundred or a thousand different sites. I, but I, like, that's just anecdotal for me. So I think you're Are competing we... with less people that way. If you focus yeah. on one target, you're competing with a tiny pool of people. If you're trying to make the one piece of code that works on a ton of sites, you're competing with, a huge number of other bug bounty hunters. To be fair, though, that kind of automation way is how I do it uh, for, for my research. Uh, but but it is kind of different because I'm I I'm not using CVEs and I'm just testing ideas out that take me fifteen minutes, 
and they work because it's things like desynchronization mm -hmm. and request request smuggling uh they will find the one like the one company that has this front end in front of this back end which causes this edge case and then blows up uh, yeah. what triggered that thought in your head by the way to uh to try desync attacks slash request smuggling in general like i these are things that are uh i don't know it's just uh, there that's a quite a spark of creativity um it's well not not really uh actually so i watched one thing i do as a researcher is i look at other other people's research so i watched uh uh regulero did a presentation in in defcon about a uh, called hp rookie smuggling and i watched the presentation and i was like this makes no sense to me i don't understand it in the slightest uh and i was basically scared of it and so i kind of made this excuse in my head as to why this didn't fall within my research remit and thereby I didn't have to understand it. Uh, and then about a year later, uh, I discovered the Watchfire white paper on request smuggling. And I was like, right, it's this thing again. I'm going to have another go. <laughs> and I just tried that. I looked through the techniques. I took the one that was easiest to implement, which was the, basically a CL.TE desync. I wrote, you know, a really basic thing. It took me 15 minutes and I ran it and it worked on every single website using Akamai. And it was like in that moment, I'd spent half an hour on this thing and I instantly knew that, that this was this was serious and it was worth spending more time on it. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I was just sort of like, uh, okay, that, that totally makes sense. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't... Uh, I wasn't able to pull up the second uh, source you cited, but at the first uh, YouTube link there is um, uh, the, the Wookiees, Wookiees in, H in HTTP yeah. talk. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so, let me find it for you. Yeah. And, you know, James, while you're looking that up, um, how, so in your, in your day to day, like how much of your time is spent looking at other research or other things that have come out? Uh, I, I would say maybe like an hour a day or something. Okay. Ish. It varies, uh, like depending on how recently certain conferences were. Yeah. And so on. Maybe less than that. Okay. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, these these days I'm mostly doing follow-ups on, on my own research. So I, I don't spend as much time looking at other people's work. Uh, but yeah. And then when you're, when you do when you are following other people, like, you know, you're mentioning some of these different uh, resources, where is it that you, where do you go to actually find that research? Uh, so I follow people on Twitter, basically. Okay. Uh, and I also read NetSec, which is good for the stuff that doesn't go on Twitter. Uh-huh. Uh, and the main trick is, which I mentioned in that blog post uh, about being a web security researcher is if I read something good, then I read everything on that blog. And okay. that was how I believe that was how I found that Watchfire paper on request smuggling, which caused the HP desync research. I read something else by Amit Klein and I was like, this guy knew, really knew what he was doing and was saying really cool stuff even though it was in 2004 or something. And so I just read everything else that he wrote that I could find. Okay. 
No, and that's, I mean, again, that's a good tip, right? Is because, uh, you know, a lot of those single like medium blog posts or whatever come out, they don't have all of the background that's associated with uh, the research or how the, how the researcher got to that point. So understanding their thinking before then or reading about the other research, even if it's only tangentially related, um, will, I, I mean, it causes more thoughts, right? It causes more impetus to actually go out and do something else yeah and it's just like well if they've done good research once they've probably done it in the past and research good research the probability that good research actually gets shared widely is quite low Mm -hmm. so if i spot something and it's not from like someone i actually follow on twitter then it's been shared widely so there's probably at least five other posts that that same person did that no one read and I definitely want to be reading those ones. Okay. Yeah. No. And that's, that's good to know. Right. Like I, um, I know that's, that's been something I've been struggling with recently as far as where, where good research is being posted. Right. I mean, there, there is still the stuff that comes out on Twitter, but it does feel like in the last five years or so, there's not quite as much active um, publishing going on you know, at least on Twitter, right? Our NetSec uh, seems to be good. Somebody else rep- rec- uh, uh, recommended Lobsters, right? Um, I use Slack. Well. I use various Slack workspaces too, just to join, you know, I mean, I don't, yeah, that's another area where that seems, for me, it has been more useful than Twitter, but mm-hmm. I don't know how it is for you, James. Uh, I Yeah, occasionally I find some decent stuff in Slack, but... I get a lot. Of, I get a lot of DMs asking for burp support whenever I'm in this Slack channel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally get that. <laughs> Speaking as someone who gets a lot of support requests for GitHub accounts being locked out, or you know, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I bet. Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. Yeah, I'm still Discord too. Permanently banned from Uber. So if you know anyone from Uber, <laughs> they can unban me. Oh, I used to, not anymore. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, Permit, I do that, have... that sounds like a story. I don't know if I want to, yeah. Is that something you could talk about, James? Uh, <laughs> what happened there? I was just, I think they're just, I was hacking on them. And, you know, I got paid some stuff. And then I I registered, I, I managed to register as, as an Uber freight driver uh, <laughs> by, you know, bypassing a bunch of client side con- controls and then using a real card to pay some real money for it uh and then i think something just flagged something and i haven't haven't been able to use uber ever since <laughs> well, they, maybe they're doing something right over there i guess you know detecting that uh that's funny that the uh, banning is is pretty good because I, I tried to bypass it by changing uh sim and that didn't work and by changing card and that didn't work so it's like it isn't just the number or the sim or the card so yeah, wow. they've definitely got some pretty fancy stuff there. <laughs> yeah, that's very intense. Interesting. Hmm. I, I'm pretty sure you could bypass it eventually, right? You know, if you. If I you think really... you would need a completely like a new, new phone out. with a new SIM, with a new uh, with a new card, with a maybe with a different name, all at the yeah. same time. Yeah, that should do the job. <laughs> that should do it. Legally change your name, get a new ID. <laughs> yeah. It's very simple to uh, bypass. No, that's, that's hilarious. Do you have a, uh, I was going to ask you, cause you had mentioned frameworks doing things 
uh, a little bit more uh, handling a lot of, a lot by default in terms of like CSER for XSS protections, um, ORMs that protect against injection. Um, do you have any preferences for web frameworks that you feel are more doing that better, more securely or, um, and alternatively, are there any frameworks that are kind of, yeah. Uh, sketch. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, more the latter. Uh, more the latter. <laughs> we saw uh, when we were making Burp Enterprise, they were like, "So we're thinking of of using Angular JS," <laughs> and then Gavin and I were like, "No, <laughs> don't do it." Uh, so yeah, we use React for that. Uh, yeah, and similar, uh, the like, like out of my cash poisoning research and such, like I found some crazy headers like X original URL that were coming from uh, PHP frameworks that were based on the Zend framework. And it's, right. it's just, it's like the, you, the, you think you're using like symphony or something like that. That's in it's, it's, it's quite nice, but it's just got this massive legacy code base behind it. You're introducing tons of complexity and tons of crazy features that you didn't know existed for the end result. Uh, yeah, PHP. I feel like anything PHP is usually like uh, a red flag in and of itself. Uh, at least it has been for me historically. I don't know about you, Seth. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been around. Like like James is saying, it's been around for so long that we, you know, there, there's a lot of old cruft that's in there that doesn't necessarily get cleaned out. You know, time after time, and I mean, partially that is, you know, is is for you know, compatibility sake, right? Making sure that old, you know, PHP 5 code or whatever will run on a modern uh, binary, but it does introduce a lot of additional complexity that you don't understand is going to be there, right? From a developer perspective. So, I, I, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's hard to say don't use it, right? When the uh, most developers don't necessarily have that choice. You walk into a large company and they that's what they're using, you're stuck, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess what I would say is if you're going to use a given framework, see, like, is this based on any other frameworks? Like, how many layers of middleware is this framework adding to your site? What, do the, what, do the, what does the middleware actually do? Uh, yeah. That kind of thing. Like, I, I saw, like, when, when I did the cause research, there was loads of middleware, and I think this was probably Node.js, that was just a- adding ultra permissive cause headers on everything just to be helpful, you know? <laughs> and so you could just hack loads of stuff out of the box and they had no intent, like, like these were Bitcoin exchanges and they had no intention of using cores at all, but they used some middleware to do their API and the API was like, well, it's an API. So we'll reflect the, the origin header and put allow credentials true to make the API work as good yeah. as possible. <laughs> yeah, that's the easiest, it did. easiest way to still, <laughs> still cookies and credentials uh, or well, cookies sessions. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty terrible. Yeah. Well, like, I've noticed yeah. there's two. Oh, go ahead, Seth. No, no. I was just going to say they were obviously successful at, you know, what they were trying to accomplish Yeah, yeah in definitely. more ways than they wanted. So yeah, go ahead, Ken. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think I was just going to say, you know, I've noticed that there are also things that call themselves frameworks that aren't really frameworks, but they're like you piecing together different middleware and trying to build 
um, or, you know, piecing together middleware and then also choosing your ORM of your choice or uh, different, like I, one that comes to mind is Node and Express with like C-Surf library included and an ORM of your choice. And you're kind of just picking and choosing which things all kind of come together to make a framework, but it's not really a truly like opinionated framework. And I feel like those ones that leave more room for you to, I guess more flexible in a way, but they, they give you more granular control can actually be more problematic, at least in my experience. I don't know if you have any thoughts on um, something like that. Like if you, you know, have thoughts on whether in a more opinionated framework, like a, a Django is a good, I guess, a good example of that. Uh, would you say .NET Core, Seth? I'm not really sure if that's super opinionated. Uh, it's way. not super opinionated, right? It has a generic layout, but it's not yeah. that opinionated. It's not like a, a Rails or a Django or some of those others, other very opinionated frameworks. So, And I think even Spring, you can plug in some different things, but maybe is going more towards the opinionated side of thing. I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't know if you have any preferences, uh, James, or I mean, thoughts there. What I've seen, I've I've seen a lot more Rails Rails specific vulnerability classes than I have Django, for sure. Uh Rails does all a lot of crazy things. Oh yeah. Whereas Django seems fairly solid. Uh so if you do have a vulnerability in Django, uh addons.mozilla.org is built on Django. So you can hack that with it and get paid for it, which is worth knowing. Uh, that is worth knowing. <laughs> That's awesome. I th- I'd say with Django, one thing I like about Django is how uh, security focused their documentation is. And if you, they give you any opportunity to make some change a setting and make something less secure, I feel like they do a good job of pointing that out. Whereas, yeah, to your point with Rails, um, uh, I've got lots of opinions there, but... <laughs> GitHub uses Rails for some stuff, don't they? <laughs> yeah, just, you could say just that. some stuff. You could say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's um it's funny you mentioned that though about middleware and and there being some uh some weird behavior there. We've had there there have been times where you know it's like you expect uh for instance uh, say Rack has intercepted some request and and uh you're gonna pull some elements out of that request it's funny because how it how rack does that between versions between two separate type of apps that are maybe it's like you know chained together uh apps which we had a i forget the exact context but we had something like that we were taking basically there were two separate middlewares taking requests and so like what you would get from one app at the that layer at that middleware layer would totally be different from where it would or how it would look at the next app. So like trying to, um, and then also passing through, I think like a, a proxy was, was part of that as well. And so it's, nice. it's basically yeah. like a chained, the, the original request is like, basically doesn't look anything like what it looks like at that final end stage. It's so crazy. Um, how, how the, the differences of how these middlewares handle that, handle the requests. I mean, structure. yeah, it's really nasty. HB2 downgrading is another great example of that. It's like people are literally receiving a request in one protocol and rewriting it to a different protocol and applying security rules and then sending it on to the back end. It's like, you know, you can, you're changing the protocol. Yeah, that's There's insane. There's loads of things that can go wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think about that, right? You're like, oh, you just accepted something over TCP. I just rewrote it in UDP. It's fine, right? Like, don't worry about it. And, like if you try to do those comparisons, 
it, it, it shows how kind of insane it is. Yeah. But there is, I, I mean, there's like you found, right? There's some really good stuff there with that step down from HTTP2 to HTTP1 that you know is still going on. And it's even internal to Nginx and other, you know, other web servers or redirect proxies or whatever else that's out there. I, yeah, I, I seem to see it all over the place, right? Yeah, that's it. And it, I think it basically comes back to HP2 is so complex that everyone's like, you know what? I don't want to deal with that complexity. I'm just going to convert it into yeah. H1 because I understand that. And yeah, it just makes everything worse. We're still working on, I said as part of my HP2 research that I was going to release some online uh, web security academy labs so people could practice their HP2 hacking techniques. And it's just proved such a nightmare to code these labs because of HTTP2. Yeah. We're still working on them. That's like what I spent yesterday on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I did want to plug that, the the Web Pen Tester Academy stuff that you guys do over at Portswigger. Because if, if you haven't been through it, right, even as a seasoned professional, it's super useful to practice out some of those techniques and some of the new stuff that's popped up. Um, yes, there is the XSS stuff. There's kind of the the basics that are there, but that the new research, right. It's been super useful to actually exercise that and learn about it. And I know, you know, some of the questions that we got for you were very, very specific and very related to, you know, HTTP2 and the request smuggling attacks and how to actually execute those using burp suite. Um, and I would probably, you know, tell people go to the Academy first, try it out, make sure it works there before trying it against a, a site itself. Right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Cause if you don't, if you don't understand the concept with the Academy, it's, you know, it's very unlikely that you're going to find it in a new application where it is a bespoke or custom or a different, right. Like where it maybe isn't vulnerable to that, to that exploit. That's it. I get a, a huge number of email. So maybe, 90% of my emails are basically saying, can you help me hack this site? Uh, generally <laughs> with request smuggling uh, or with some other talk that with some other technique that I did some, did some research on. Uh, and I don't really engage with these anymore. I've got, I, I've got a text file with replies that I copy and paste. All very politely placed. Uh, but when I, when I didn't investigate those or when I do in investigate them because it's like it's on paypal and it'll be a really big payout if it does work yeah and i have offered to split it which a lot of them don't uh, then it's basically always a false positive it's yeah. like it's like if 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 they read the issue description that burp is giving them or my extension is is giving them it says this may be a, a false positive uh but they don't and they try to confirm it correctly and it doesn't work. And it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's not vulnerable. Yeah. (laughs) Or they just find something slightly weird. Like they send this and it times out and they think it must be vulnerable because they caused a timeout. And it's like, well, a lot of things can cause a timeout. It's the nature of the web. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad, you, you know, we're not the only ones that get the, get the, you know, help me fact, uh, you know, help me ha- hack my friends, cousins, uh, ex-boyfriends, uh, Facebook account, right. You know, using, yeah. yeah. I was thinking James needs like, you know how, um, so like with hacker one, or I'm sure bug crowd has this too. You can put like trigger keywords with a, a, a specific risk, like, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, with a pre-written response, 
that matches yes. that trigger. Yes, exactly. So get some machine learning in there. Yeah. See, uh, so so James, that's all you need for your. You know, you need to write a Slack bot to respond to people for you know, and then and then you could be in there and you know get some research out of it, right? Like I don't know. I I think uh, I did want to get to one of one of the questions that we that we had gotten in for you uh, since we're starting to get towards the latter part of our hour with you and you know it's it's been, it's been amazing thank you so much for your time but uh, so one of these questions is uh, if you could choose one part of a request to attack if you had to choose just one a path a header something along those lines uh, what would it be and why. Uh that's really difficult. I, I mean, because of because of request smuggling, I'd be like, yeah, ahead of the transfer encoding header, <laughs> because there's so many different different ways that that can be passed. Uh, probably, but after that, yeah, that's a tough question. That's a really tough. <laughs> that is question. really tough. Like, yeah, you can do great yeah. stuff with the path too, uh, but orange is better at that at that kind of stuff, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. So ask orange. That's what. You're yeah, saying. exactly. <laughs> oh, or so did you say orange sigh? I missed yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my goodness, orange sigh. The research. Yeah, I've I've been a big fan of the research orange size released in the past. Uh, actually, speaking of bug bounties and uh, GitHub, there was one that's still my favorite, where it's like four different. I think it's like a couple different SSR. It's like four different vulnerabilities chained together for like a really cool yeah. impact hack and it's like still to, to this day one of my favorites mm-hmm. um, let's see I, i'm trying to see if there's anything else i want to to ask seth why as i go through these you want to ask anything you've got um yeah i, I mean <clears throat> from a sorry about that i got a little bit of a cough the uh from a general like research perspective um like You've you've got like the web security like so you want to be a web security researcher. Somebody finds a topic, they've read up read up on it, right? Like, what is it that like? Where do you start, right? Like, what is your like impetus to to go after something? Um, after like after you're a little bit familiar with it, is it turning to like all of the the bug bounty the bug uh, bug bounty researchers trying some things out, like exercising it um, locally. Like, what is kind of your first stage when you get to that point? I my first stage is to say, well, say, uh, say, like, I've got a hypothesis based on this research that so and so technique might work. Then I'll be, then I'll be like, well, what are the conditions? Okay. required and it'll be like the front end does this and the back end does this and the middleware does this uh and then i'll be like well which is like w- what's the least likely can condition and can i test for just that condition with a small piece simple piece of code okay and then well, i'll take that code and run it on all, all the bounty on, sites on all the bounty sites and it's like okay. if that works then i do the next condition and if that works then i do the next one and it's I'm just ready to just dump the research as early as possible. Okay. Uh, and by the time that I've spent, but if I have spent a, a week on something, I've probably confirmed all the conditions, and I've got a couple of t- sites that this technique actually works on. Yeah. Okay. And that makes sense, right? Like find that least probable condition, test it out, 
if it doesn't exist, then the research is done and move on. Um, but, you know, being able to eliminate quickly the, the false positive or the research in and of itself, like the exploit or the vulnerability is a good way to go about it. Right. Um, don't waste yeah. time on things that, that don't exist. It's like you take the idea and you break it down into questions that you want to answer. So you want to answer, are there any front ends out there that do X, Y, Z? And you write some code that answers that question. And regardless of whether your research, whether your technique worked or failed, you've learned something because you answered the question. And maybe that information will be useful later, even if that research is a complete dead end. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yep. Cool. Good. That was my question there. Uh, Ken, did you have any others? Like, I know we just got a question in to ask if you could talk about the framework you use internally when testing burp. I don't know if that's something you can talk uh, about. Sure. Yeah. So this is so all my extensions use this. Uh, so just look at the code of any of my extensions. Uh, that said, uh, let me think which one has the least bad code. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's difficult. Uh, that's quite difficult. Probably, uh, Look at look at Param Miner uh, and look at the look at the scan check stuff and not the actual Param guessing stuff because that's horrendous. Uh, but Param Miner has scan checks for things like does the server let you use a, a fat get, for example, which Rails supports by default. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and yeah, if you look at that, you'll see it's just like ten lines of code to say does the server support fat fat get and there it's it's this thing of you, you're not trying to find the vulnerability you're just trying to find like one condition and then you can do manual work or code more stuff to do follow-ups based on that yeah yeah, <clears throat> yeah that's it, i mean follow follow finding that smallest condition or you know being able to eliminate all the noise using a small condition like that is extremely useful. I mean, from a coding perspective, just in general, not even from a, uh, you know, a security, you know, exploit perspective. Yeah. Well, exactly. we want to be, I'll, I'll just share that link. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Right. I swear I'm having the, so uh, yeah, I'm having computer issues too. So I, sometimes I get a little bit of lag. So, but uh, that's right. I just should talk for GitHub. Yeah. Oh, here. Um, yeah, I just posted it. There you go. Yep. Sweet. Oh, nice. Yeah, I can go right to the source and take a look. Sweet. Yeah, definitely do that. I'm going to do that, actually. I'm, I'm curious. It's all terrible code, but it does the job. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it, that's it, what security writes, though. Yeah, mostly. most security tools is terrible code. Terrible code. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Which programs are you looking for when testing remote code execution? Huh. I never thought to ask that. Uh, yeah. Which I, I don't look for specific prompts. I just try and find all the prompts and then kind of poke them and see what happens, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's hard to say I look for these specific parameters. I, it's more you're looking for indicators, right, in the response. Yeah, it's, it's, especially if you're doing something like bug bounty hunting, what you're trying to do is find a bug that everyone else has missed. So when there's a program called, like, exec, you're wasting yeah. your time looking at it, unless you did some amazing recon to find that site anyway. But it, assuming it's, it's their main site, uh, like, uh, I found a remote code execution with backslash pad 
scanner and it was because they were calling php's eval on the path just the path and uh if anything was url encoded then it like broke the eval or something for some reason so you were limited in the character set and and so on and like you know i found that because no no one's looking at trying to put a shell command in the path because it's kind of a weird place yeah this wasn't even like a you know like a, a, a like a a the site wasn't restful or anything it was literally just the path they had some middleware i think they just called eval on the path huh yeah well and that's where you find those interesting bugs right mike is it's typically outside of that norm and outside of that that low-hanging fruit um yeah. i do I, I do know ken was trying to say like we do want to be cognizant of your time that you spent it with us james this has been uh very enlightening for me um and, you know, we really appreciate the research that you're putting out, everything that you guys do over there at Port Swigger. Uh, we're big fans. I mean, we use, I, I use Burp on a daily basis, right? Like, we, you know. Cool, it's yeah. A, it's I, incredible I, I hope there was some useful stuff in there for you guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. We're, we're, yeah. we're big fans. So it's nice yeah. to be able to talk to you uh, for an hour and, uh, just, yeah. Yeah. pick your brain a little bit yeah it's, i appreciate it uh is there anything that you would like to highlight before we go ahead and close things up for today yeah any upcoming talks any uh new research we should be on the lookout for anything that you want to tease out uh, i can't tease my upcoming research i would say be on the lookout for the hb2 two labs they are still coming people keep asking me when they're coming and i'm not going to answer that soon <laughs> as soon as they're ready as soon as they're uh ready. yeah that's that, that's oh yeah also uh this hasn't been publicly and announced but uh i'm going to be redoing my hb2 talk uh live for the first time at black hat europe uh so if you're able to get to london in the lockdown then you can watch the only live airing of it awesome nice that's so amazing. if you're going go to james's talk right <laughs> I, I i'm pretty sure we didn't yeah, like we probably won't be there, sadly, right? Like, I, I no, I don't think there's going to be many people in the room there. That's just why I'm trying to promote it. This, <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. Awesome. Okay, well, uh, we'll go ahead and call it for today. Thanks everybody cool. for joining. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, James, for being with us and for everything that you do for the community. And yeah, we'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks. Thanks.